This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we continue our series on healing gardens and therapeutic landscapes, this week we dive into one age-old plant ally, the elder or elderberry of the genus Sambucus, comprised of 20 species widely distributed across the Northern Hemisphere, as well as in Australia, New Zealand, and South America. We're joined in our discussion today by John Moody, who with his wife Jessica and their now five children, aged 3 to 13, homestead on 35 acres outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Having moved to the land for health reasons, the family spent their first years learning how to farm by learning how to grow soil. John is the founder of Whole Life Services and the Whole Life Buying Club, and his book, The Elderberry Book shares all he's learned about foraging, cultivating, preparing, and preserving with the many parts of the elder plant and about its long history. We start our conversation with how he and the family came to this life. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. I'd really like to start off with the question. So did you always know you wanted to be a homesteader? Well, There's an author I really love by the name of Francis Schaeffer Mm. and a line from one of his books that, that really stuck with me is he just said, you know, people weren't made to grow up among concrete and steel that obscures the sun. And that wasn't the only reason we moved out of the city, but that there's this driving urge that I wanted um, both for myself and my family to live in partnership with nature rather than in an adversarial or antithetical relationship with nature. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted my kids to grow up experiencing caring for land and plants and animals, you know, without it having to be like trying to fit it into all the rest of life and escaping the city on the weekend to see what this is like. Mm-hmm. So, and for health reasons, I, I wanted to not live in the city. The, the The biggest reason we ended up, you know, doing the buying club, getting into food and farming is because by my early 20s, my health had just completely and utterly collapsed. So I had seasonal allergies so bad that Benadryl sent me free stock options as a patronage dividend. Um, <laughs> I had rampant dental decay where my mouth could have been an Exxon drilling rig for all that was going on there. And I had, you know, I could have been my own CAFO animal operation. I had so many antibiotics growing up. And this all culminated in my early 20s where I developed duodenal ulcers. You know, but growing up as an American, you know, most Americans associate health with a certain amount of dental decay, a certain amount of being on pharmaceuticals consistently, a certain amount of degenerative disease is now the American definition of health. And when I developed these duodenal ulcers, something kind of clicked in my mind that this could not be the way that things were meant to be. And so my then fiance Now my wife, Jessica, and I embarked on a journey that 
you know, every time I look back, I'm just like, it's unbelievable. Um, for many years, my family just couldn't make sense of what had happened to me because I'm, you know, I grew up a standard American watching cartoons, eating McDonald's, never growing a thing, having nothing to do with food and farming. And now I'm this person. And it was really this collapse of my health that opened up my mind to the thought of maybe there is a different way. Maybe there is a better way. And then once I found that way, um, how can I help other people rediscover this way? Yeah, yeah. So when you and I use the word homestead, what does that first of all mean to you? Let's define our terms and then let's move into where the elderberry comes in on all levels of this life for you. Yeah. So a homestead or a homesteader is basically a, a place that tries to create all of its own fuel, fiber, food, and fertility. The big kind of difference in my mind between a farmer and a homesteader is a homesteader is primarily focused on Mm self-sufficiency through production, whereas a farmer is focused on economic sufficiency through production. Gotcha. Yes. So that's usually how I view them and try and make the distinction between the two. The elderberry, when did you first meet it? When did you first begin to understand its immense history and charms? And then we'll we'll get into a little bit more about the book. Yes. So I think it was in 2013 or 2014, I was speaking at one of the Mother Earth News Fairs, Mm -hmm. and I had a couple of my kids with me. And one of the vendors was giving away little sticks of wood. And so we walk up to this booth and, and the vendor's like, hey, do you want some elderberry cuttings? And, you know, a big part of having a homestead is you just plant everything and kind of see what sticks. (laughs) I don't want plants that require a lot of babysitting. So we plant a lot of different things and the things that survive are telling us they like it here and they want to stay with us. And so I was like, oh, another thing to plant. And so they handed us a whole bunch of these, you know, six, eight inch pieces of what, what basically looks like a stick. And he's like, just, you know, when you get back to your homestead, make a hole, put some amended soil in the hole, stick these sticks in the hole, and they'll eventually turn into elderberry plants. I was like, great. And so we took our sticks and we got home and we planted them. And that was our introduction to the plant that we knew absolutely nothing about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want a little clarification on those um, those sticks, those cuttings. Were they green? Did they have vi- – I mean, clearly they had viable nodes, but when you looked at them, were they green and or did you have to keep them wet until you got home? Like how – or were you? did you literally just put the stick in your pocket and then it dried to the extent that it was going to and then you planted it out when you got home? So – I think they might have been keeping one end of the stick in water, but but it was a true hardwood cutting. Right. Okay. Um, the nods at that time were sleeping. Um, so, so it was just like a dormant hardwood cutting. Okay. 
and so we we did not do any special care between when they were handed to us at the fair and when we finally put them in the ground when, when we got them home. Okay. And then they and so then they grew. Keep going with the story. Yeah. So they started to grow. I, I think we had, you know, ten or twelve cuttings to start wow. and seven survived. Well done. Yeah, you know, I'm always amazed things survive when they're under my care, especially <laughs> early because I, I just knew nothing. You know, that, that it's always I always tell people, like, if you think you can't homestead or do this, like you could not have known less than I knew when I started. So if I can do this, you can definitely do this as well, as, as long as you want to succeed. And so they grew, um, you know, we would eat some of the berries on occasion, but the berries, for the most part, aren't all that palatable right off the bush. And they just kind of grew up into these beautiful, you know, one of the things I love about the elderberry is especially when it's in full bloom, it is just such a glorious mm. mm-hmm. plant to behold. You, you know, a, a 10 foot tall elder in full bloom with innumerable flowers, just just flowers that y- you would never be able to count it in a lifetime, a single bush, let alone mm-hmm. if you have multiple of them is just a wondrous thing to see, you you know, and when I talk about the planet conferences and stuff, I always talk about it as basically the perfect plant because it provides food, it provides medicine, it provides dye, it provides craft um, because of all the different ways you can use the wood, which is one of the things that most amazed me when I began to study the plant is most Americans think about this plant solely in terms of its berries. And there's a few who also think about the flowers, but this is a plant that for, if archaeological evidence is correct, 30,000 or more years possibly has served hundreds of purposes. Yeah. Yeah. So you plant out these seven cuttings. At what point do you realize that it is a specific species in the genus. And tell us about your kind of discovery and exploration research and what you start to learn. Because clearly you did a lot if you were looking back 30,000 years and hundreds of uses. Yes. Yeah, so we had these plants and we have five kids. And part of our homestead is each of our kids, when they reach about eight or nine years old, is required to have a homestead business. And so any fun things they want to do, any extra activities, they earn money from the homestead to do those things. And my daughter's first business was raising pullets, which are young chickens that are just about ready to start laying but haven't started laying yet you know, to different local people who wanted chickens, but didn't want to have to get, you know, the couple day old chicks and, you know, raise them all the way out until they're finally laying. And eventually that, that became completely untenable because of the immense predator pressure we have on our farm. And so we had heard about people making elderberry syrup and we had elderberries. And so we said, hey, would you like to start making elderberry syrup to sell to people since there's a lot of interest in this instead of doing chickens? And she was like, sure, I'll do elderberry syrup instead. And that's really how we 
started making better use of our elderberry. This would have been about three, three and a half or so years ago now. Mm-hmm. And we saw there was all of this interest in the syrup. And so she was doing this little elderberry syrup business. And I began to read about, you know, elderberry because I was just like, why is there all this interest in this random plants berries? Like, and I'm still speaking at different conferences and stuff. And I ended up talking to my editor um, while I was at one of the fairs for Mother Earth News. And I'd given a talk at that fair just about some of the research I had been doing on, on the elder. And my talk was just absolutely a massively packed out audience. And they were so excited to learn about this plant. And I said to my editor, I said, I want to write a book about the elder, the elderberry. Like, I don't think anybody's really written in in America, a book about the elderberry. And it's clearly, there's like a tremendous amount of interest in this plant. And this plant has an absolutely fascinating story. That's when I really went into full research mode. Yeah. Once my editor was like, oh, yeah, this is just such a timely and such a great thing to write a book about. Great. Yeah, it is. It really, really is. And the fact that it is so uh, ubiquitous, a plant in in growing regions across the globe, really, and it is such a long historied plant. So let's let's dive into that. Tell us a little bit about the story of the elder, then we'll get into the botany of it. Yeah, so this plant, both in terms of like Greco-Roman European history and American history, is there from the very beginning. Um, so in some of the, the, the Greek myths, like Prometheus is given the gift of fire, and in, in some of the stories, the fire is given to him on a hollowed out elder branch. <laughs> in Native American mythology, you have, I believe it's called the, the, the legend of Wekwek, the story of Wekwek. And at the creation, there is a tree and hanging on the tree are elder chimes through which the wind blows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is why, you know, if you, if you go to a store you see all of these elderberry products, and a lot of them are called sambu, um, you know, sambu call. And that's because the earliest word used to describe the elder um, was related to wind or fire, because the earliest uses of the plant were for making wind instruments or instruments to help you make a fire, like a bellows that you blow through. Ah. So because the elder, you know, in terms of its anatomy, you can make very nice, long, straight, hollow stems. So, so one of my favorite historical mentions of the elder, I think, is by Pliny the Elder in terms of Greco-Roman history, where when he's writing one of his, you know, plant herbal guide type things, comments that there's no need to even give a description of this plant. Because everyone from their youth knows what it looks like because they would go pluck stems of it to make spitball guns to assail their siblings and friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so if you think, you know, middle school children shooting things at each other is a new thing, it is not. 
And the elder has been serving that purpose long before plastic straws. <laughs> the, the history of this plant, you could write four entire books about the history of this plant, um, especially in terms of like European history. Mm -hmm. the, the number of references, um, it, it, the, the plant was so important to the Europeans that it occurs multiple times in Shakespeare. So this plant is just up until basically the 1900s intimately woven into our history. You know, two more references I'll give because they're just two of my favorite is um, have you ever watched the TV show Sesame Street? I have. Okay. And have you ever wondered to yourself why the count is a vampire? I am counting. No. One, two. Three. So the count is a vampire. Why is he a vampire? If someone were to, if you were to be concerned about a vampire coming to get you and your kin tonight, how would you defend yourself? With elderberry. Well, and, and, <laughs> you, you know, see, you know, most people would be like, I want a wooden steak. I want right. holy water. Right. I want garlic. Um, I was just taking a good guess. <laughs> you, 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 it's a pretty good guess given the context <laughs> of the interview. Exactly. But long before any of those other weaknesses, in the old Eastern European literature, vampires, one of their earliest weaknesses is obsessive compulsive counting disorder. Four, five, six, six blocks. And that's why the Count's the Count. He was typecast. Whoever did the characters for Sesame Street knew their medieval Eastern European lore. Okay. And so back during the time when people would actually be worried that a vampire might come along and come into their house at night and eat, eat them and their family, um, they were told to leave clusters of elderberries on their windowsills. Because anybody who has ever had a cluster of elderberries knows that they're uncountable. Right. <gasps> and so you would set these clusters of elderberries on your windowsill and a vampire would come along and he would go to climb into your house and he would come across this uncountable cluster of elderberries and he'd begin to try and count and he would fail and he would try again and he would fail and eventually the sun would rise and he would scurry away and you and your family would be safe. I love it. I love it. Okay, good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, two other quick references. Um, so Hans Christian Andersen, who wrote The Ugly Duckling and The Emperor's New Clothes, all of these famous stories, he wrote an entire story about the elder in his children's fairy tales um, called The Elder Tree Mother. And so that's a great one to go read if you've, if you've never gotten your hands on one of his fuller works. There's an entire story. And, and then, you know, the most modern, my favorite pop culture reference is Monty Python's um, Your Mother Was a Hamster and Your Father Smells of Elderberry from the Insulting Frenchman. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so this plant just has a deep and rich history that is humorous and informative and educational all at the same time. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with John Moody, homesteader and gardener, cultivator of many things, including the elderberry. We'll be back for more about this ancient healing plant and its many properties. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So those of you who are very keen listeners might be asking, wait, what happened to the Chelsea Physic Garden? And I have to share with you, friends, that for the first time in a full four years of production this month, happy birthday to us, by the way, we had an audio file glitch with our Chelsea Physic Garden recording. And so listen up for that interview a little later in the season. The Chelsea Physic Garden is, of course, one of the oldest extant medicinal plant gardens in the world. But also, of course, the oldest medicinal plant garden is the planet herself and the many plant allies all around us. And so this deep dive into the wonderful world of the elderberry plant queued up nicely. There's something symbolically as well as literally rich and important about such historic sharing of information about plants and medicine. The kinds of information you will find at the likes of the Chelsea Physic Garden. The kinds of information that is documented in histories of specific plants, like this about the elderberry. These stories, this information, this knowledge, is deeply integrated into the culture and myth of the world's cultures. I like to think of cultivating place as a similar repository of its own. A kind of seed bank, if you will, of people and plants and places that grow us into the people and plant lovers and places we want to be for the better of us all. So happy fourth birthday to us. As gardeners, we make a difference. And together, we grow in all good health. Now, back to our conversation with John Moody, homesteader, father, and author of the Elderberry Book. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with John Moody, cultivator of elderberries and author of The Elderberry Book, out now from New Society Publishers. As we come back, we learn more about the plant's anatomy and its many uses. Yeah, so, you know, for for the listeners to this show, there's probably four elder in particular, that are most pertinent to the discussion. Um, European elder, which goes by the technical name Nigra, the dark black elder, Mm -hmm. uh, because of the very dark color of the berries it produces. Mm -hmm. And then here on the North American continent, there's three elders. There's the Canadensis or American elder, and then there's the blue, and there's the red. Those are the four that generally are the ones that matter to us. If you go to a store in America, I think over 99% of store-bought elderberry products in America actually are made with European berries. Okay. So there's very, very little done with the elderberries that grow on the North American continent. It's very, very rare to come across products made with them, though that um, thankfully is changing. Um, and, and now there's, 
hundreds of farmers beginning to commercially grow various types of American elderberry here in the United States. Um, so, so there's more and more products becoming available made with elderberries from this side of the ocean. And so the American elderberry, the canadensis, is the one most people on the North American continent have came across, if you've came across an elderberry. Unless you're in California or out west, then you're more likely to have came across the red or the blue. Right, which is what we have native in our area. Yes. 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 So in your area, you're you're never going to have seen a, a canadensis most likely, but you're going to have seen many, many blue and red. Whereas for everybody east of the Rockies, um, you might have seen a red. You've probably never seen a blue unless you've traveled out west, but you've almost certainly seen uh, a regular old American canadensis type. Yeah. So the parts of the plant... Yeah, so so the elder varies depending on the type, somewhere between like a shrub and a small tree, like a shrub or bush to a small tree. Mm-hmm. And it tends to grow, especially at this point in our history, um, in places that are undisturbed by machinery. Um, so you'll find it along fence lines, along drainage ditches, along sinkholes, um, it's a water-loving plant. Um, so so the, the Greco-Romans would often use it along the sides of roads to stabilize the embankments and deal with all the water that would run off the road because um, the plants really, really like water. So you'll find it in those kind of places. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to identify it, you know, it's a woody plant rather than an herbaceous plant. Um Especially in my part of the country, people often mistake elder for poke, even though they're not really, especially when they first get into foraging for food and wild foods or whatnot. I actually saw an ad for somebody selling elderberry syrup, and they had the berries in the picture, and they were poke berries. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I just bring up poke because especially in the eastern half of the United States, a lot of people mistake poke for elderberry, but poke is an herbaceous plant. It has a green garden plant-like stem, an annual plant-like stem, whereas elder is a woody, shrubby plant. It has a woody growth. And on that woody growth, the elder is marked by a little special type of plant tissue called a lenticel. And it's almost akin to the little marks people get on their skin, you know, the moles or, um, oh, what are those called? Sunspots. Yeah. Yeah. Freckles. So, so they kind of look like that only on the wood of the, the elder. Yeah. Now that you say Um, that, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And so the lenticels can be really, really helpful for differentiating the elder, you know, knowing that it's woody. And knowing that it has lenticels will go a very long way in not mixing it up with a couple of the more common lookalikes. Gotcha. So the the woody structure is what people use for a lot of the kind of utilitarian and craft purposes. I know the indigenous cultures in the West certainly um, 
the flute made by uh, with the elderberry uh, stem is is well known in our area. When you look at the green parts of the plant, um, and we have the the leaves and the flowers and then the berries. Talk about the uses of this part and the the both food and medicinal uses of it, John. Yeah. So, and it's it's not just the leaves and berries. Um, I found recipes for pickled buds. Oh, interesting. So, so the and the roots were used. The pith, which is that soft plant material that grows inside the wood. Um, so the reason elder can be hollowed out so easily is it's full of a material called pith. Mm-hmm. And the pith, especially if you let the wood dry a little bit, is very, very easy to remove from inside inside a piece of the wood. And so when you look at Hippocrates, when you look at Galen and, and all of these writers um, from antiquity forward, they used every single part of the plant medicinally strangely, except for the berries. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Uh, so it wasn't until the six, seven, eight hundreds that you finally have people beginning to discuss in writing the medicinal use of the berries. Mm. So when, when you're reading in especially Greco-Roman times, a lot of the time when they mentioned the berries, it's in relation to, um, you know, making wine and other, other spirits, or it's in reference to using the berries as a hair dye. Yeah. Um, so, so they would use um, the, the leaves especially were used in a number of different medicinal preparations. But the one that persisted the longest was using it in um, preparations for skin care. So I found an ad I think from a publication in the late 1700s or early 1800s in England, like a facial toner and lip balm that was made, including using elderberry leaves. And so there's a number of recipes where you boil the leaves of the elder um, in oil, you know, usually lard or or tallow or a similar oil um, to extract the chemicals in the leaves. And then you'd combine that with other things to make lip balms and skin things or also to make salves and things to treat skin infections or burns. So it was considered medicinal as well as perhaps aesthetically helpful in moisturizing or something. Exactly. Ah, Interesting. I hadn't heard that about it. Okay, good. And so, yep, keep going. Yeah. So in terms of food... Um, the buds of the plant were used as food pickled. The flowers have a long history of use in teas um, and use in, you know, wine and other beverage making. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, though, and then the berries, those were the only parts of the plant, I believe, that were used as food. Now talk about whether or not we should eat raw berries. Oh, goodness. This is going to get me in trouble. (laughs) This is the only topic that I've ever been like um, yelled at over. So this is the topic that gets me in trouble. The European Negra berries, if eaten raw, generally will cause um, stomach cramping and stomach upset in people. And this is because the elder plant, um, you know, it's a very bad survival strategy to be eaten. Yes, <laughs> it so, is. So just like 
Like, like, you know, you're not going to get very far in the grand scheme of things if you get eaten. So animals don't want to be eaten. And so some of them have thick hides and some of them have sharp claws and some of them are very fast or very strong. Plants don't want to be eaten either, um, but they don't have claws or other things. They contain chemicals that try and harm or kill things that eat them. And so for the elder, it contains cyanide. So rather crude, but effective. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because if you eat the elder, it doesn't get a chance to reproduce. And so it wants to reproduce. So if you try and eat it, it gives you cyanide poisoning. And so there's lots of reports of cyanide poisoning from, you know, all parts of the plant for some varieties of elder contain cyanide. Um, Where we get into the area that there's still a little bit of a kerfuffle is the University of Missouri, I believe, recently did some testing. Um, I think it was by Professor Andrew Thomas was one of the professors who, who was part of the project where they were testing American canadensis elderberries. And they found that those berries, when fully ripe, were completely cyanide-free. And so a very well-known forager, um, Samuel Thayer, he also says in his foraging book that American canadensis elderberries, and I believe also the blue, are generally safe to consume right off the bush, fully ripe, even though they're raw. And this is not true of the red elder, and this is not true of the European nigra. So, but there's still some people when they eat too many of the canadensis, they don't feel very good. They end up feeling a little crampy or unhappy. And part of it is, you know, when you're out in a field and you come across an elder, it's not like you can pop the hood on the car and figure out if it's a canadensis or a nigra. So even though nigra is not super common in the eastern United States, you know, settlers brought plants from Europe and other people have, you know, brought nigra over and cultivated it and grown it. And then there's also the issue of genetic cross-contamination among plants over time. So this is a debated area. So, so when I don't give an entirely wholehearted endorsement for people to go out and eat lots of American canadensis berries raw, that makes a few people mad at me. And that's just the price of, you know, being a person who speaks on a subject. You can't keep everybody happy all the time. No. And I think just so a couple of caveats for uh, listeners in the West, the elderberry plant is actually protected in the wild. Uh, it has a very uh, specific association with a protected beetle, the elderberry beetle. And so cutting in the wild is not uh, appropriate or legal. And in general, we shouldn't eat raw things from the wild without really, really strong positive ID. So take that as a, a, a caution. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with John Moody, homesteader and gardener, cultivator of many things, including the elderberry. We'll be back for more about this ancient healing plant and its many beneficial properties. Stay with us. So, 
thinking out loud here. This is the fourth episode in our Healing Garden series, and we have two official episodes in the series still to go. But really, the series title is a conceit of sorts, isn't it? Because after all, when we do it with heart and intention for the earth, for ourselves, for our fellow planet mates of plants, animals, and humans, our gardens are always healing something, if you ask me. Healing our connections on all levels. Remember this on bad days, on good days, on sick days, and well days. Our gardens make everything better. Now, back to our conversation with John Moody, homesteader, father, and author of the Elderberry Book. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with John Moody, cultivator of elderberries and author of the Elderberry Book. As we come back, John shares with us more on how he cultivates the elder in his Kentucky garden and some simple medicinal preparations. So you had... Ten cuttings, seven survived. How big did they get? And how do you care for them? How do you care for them? How do you harvest? So the different cultivars will grow in slightly different habits and slightly different sizes. So the American Canadensis variety will go anywhere from about six to 16 feet tall. So this is not a small garden plant. Well, well, it can be because, um, again, some of the smaller varieties will be, you know, six to eight feet tall. Okay. Um, and all of the varieties respond very well to pruning. Mm-hmm. So even if you have a variety that has a slightly more vigorous growth habit, you can keep it pruned to whatever size is to your liking. Which, especially if you're using the elder more for, you know, food and medicine rather than for ornamental purposes, mm-hmm. you're going to want to keep it to a reasonable height to keep harvest manageable. Okay. And, of course, if you want it for habitat, let it grow as big as you have room for. If you're growing it for the flowers and fruit, does it flower on new wood or old wood? It'll flower on both. Ah, interesting. Okay, good. Um, But what tends to happen, if I'm remembering correctly offhand, is um, the older growth isn't as productive and it tends to put forth because, you know, it'll do basically, you know, side growth off of the main growth and then that'll branch out again. And those, those kind of older side growth put out smaller clusters. Okay. Okay. And this is another reason many commercial growers now in the United States will actually almost completely ground prune their their elder orchards. So it's almost like a coppicing effect. Yeah, they'll, they'll you know they'll cut them to only three feet tall, or some even cut them down to just a foot tall, because the plant is such an incredibly vigorous yeah. grower yeah. that it will completely grow six feet. Um, and, and it'll just be, you know, about a month later than normal in terms of flowering and fruiting. Okay. But it will completely regenerate. Now, 
I have never cultivated this in my own garden, but it's all around us in the the wild areas. And my overall impression, and you described it as such, is that it's basically shrubby. When you prune like that, do you force new growth from the bottom and does it kind of sucker a little bit to create a colony or does it stay pretty contained in its crown, John? Yeah. Yeah, so this goes back to which cultivar you have. Okay. Um, some grow more tree-like where they have this, you know, really central, very thick main stem. Mm-hmm. So in my elderberry book, I have a picture of the different elder on our farm. And that one is the one we call the king elder because it's it's around 14 feet tall now. Mm. And the base of it is probably six inches is my guess in diameter. And so it does put off some lateral rhizome kind of runners, mm-hmm. but but it has a much more central growth where the ones right out the window um, from where I'm sitting, that one grows much more like your blackberries and raspberries, mm, okay. where it puts up innumerable new canes. Okay. And it's constantly spreading. Um, So one of the other historical uses for this plant was to make living fences and hedgerows and and privacy screens. So there's some neat quotes I came across with regards to the elder being used this way. One of my favorites was that um, an author in England said that certain varieties of the elder were great to use to keep minchers, meaning thieves, out of your garden. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because they're um, they're dense, and when when they're when it's an old shrub or plant, uh, it has and and that woody sort of armature in the in the center of the plant is is pretty dense. Yeah, yeah, and so the the one out my window, each of those original plants is now surrounded by hundreds of new plants, and it's just grown up into a very dense thicket. Um, that we've basically kept from taking over the entire front of our our home, you know, by mowing. <laughs> so, or or you know, pretty soon the elder would be with me in my office rather right. than just outside my window. Right. So, do you water? Do you feed? Or have you you know established these in a fairly damp uh, environment anyway? Because as you mentioned, they are naturally uh, sort of riparian kinds of plants. Yeah. So since we're in Kentucky, we tend to get sufficient rainfall Mm -hmm. to keep the plants fairly happy. The ones in front of our house are actually in between the lateral lines for our septic system. So that area tends to, you know, stay a bit damper anyway Mm -hmm. because of the moisture coming off of the house. And so if you're, especially when you're first planting these, they do not like competition when first getting established. So you really want to mulch around them or do something else to keep grass and weeds away. And then you also need a way, especially if your area is prone to becoming dry, to provide supplemental irrigation of some kind. So when I do consulting work and people want to put elder and other, you know, they'll have me come and help them do homestead design and other things. Um, If they want to have them close to their house, I will often have them, you know, plant them in a way where they can divert gutter runoff from Mm -hmm. their roof to the elders. Mm -hmm. 
so whatever you can do, make sure they'll have access to lots of water. And even once they're established, sufficient water around fruiting time will both increase the quality of the fruit, but it immensely reduces the labor of harvest. Okay. Um, especially removing those small berries from the stems. Okay. So you really want the plants to be as moist as possible because those really plump berries in all of that pressure where the berry meets the stem from there being sufficient groundwater. So the plant is pushing groundwater up through all of its tissues and pieces all the way up to the berries uh, makes the berries come off the stems far easier. Okay, good tip. So let's have you describe for us why we would make elderberry syrup and how we would make elderberry syrup, John. Yeah, so why? Because it tastes good and because I think it's the University of Wisconsin says that the elderberry is a true superfruit. That when you look at like how much you, nutrition you get per ounce or per serving or whatever metric you want to use, the elderberry just eclipses tons of things people normally consider to be incredibly healthy food options. And so the, the elderberry has a long history of medicinal use especially for colds and flus. Mm -hmm. The FDA does not recognize that yet, I believe. And so I'm very, very hopeful that they will catch up to Europe in this regards because all across Europe, the medicinal value of elderberry preparations has long been recognized and celebrated. Yeah. And there's just great, great research, dozens and dozens of studies showing that for colds and flus and viruses, elderberry shows great promise in terms of reducing the severity and the duration mm -hmm. of illnesses, you know, caused by viral infections of all kinds because of just all these great phytochemicals and other nutrients that the berries give us. Yeah. And I mean, I when I was reading the book, of course, I'm, you know, dog-earing all of these and I've been taking elderberry syrup for forever. But the number of antioxidants that it has more of than even like the blueberry or the raspberry, which are also kind of superfood fruits, uh, was really remarkable. I had never read any of that research, but I was like, okay, good. I'll get my next bottle <laughs> of syrup and I need to learn how to make the syrup. So... Yeah, so, so if you want to make the syrup... We don't want to compete with your daughter. Let's just be clear. Like this is not a commercial <laughs> endeavor. Yeah, well, you know, and obviously, if you don't want to make the syrup, you can order from my daughter, and she will gladly <laughs> send you a bottle of syrup. Okay. Uh, and you'll get her one bottle closer to getting the horse she's always dreamed of. Okay. But you can make elderberry stuff from the fresh berries, from the dried berries, or from the juice. So, like, if you go over to Europe, elderberry juice is on the shelves of pretty much all the grocery stores, which is completely uncommon in America. Yeah. So in America, most people are either going to be working with the fresh berries that you foraged or you're going to be working with dried berries. So I'm going to go over both of the, you know, these two different things real quick. And if you're working with the fresh berries, you want to find an elder bush that is nearing the peak of ripeness. 
and you want to go to that elder bush one morning after the sun has dried the dew off the bush and preferably after a recent rain so that the especially if it's been dry you want to go after a recent rain um so that the berries are nice and plump and you basically need to take a good heavy duty pair of scissors if you don't want to have to have a pair of plant shears and you'll find a cluster of the berries and you'll notice that the clusters you know you have a main stem and it branches and it branches again and it branches again to the berries it's you know constantly branching out until you finally reach the berries and if you follow that cluster back there'll be a place where you very clearly see that the cluster attaches to the woody growth and so you basically want to snip off that entire cluster right where that cluster growth attaches to the woody growth so you don't want to cut into the woody growth of the plant you just want to take that entire cluster off all together okay and drop it into a bucket or drop it into a t-shirt bring them home and then you have a few different options if they're really ripe and the berries seem kind of really happy to come off of the stems you can take a fine tooth comb and gently comb the berries off of the stems. Ah, oh, nice. Okay. If they seem a little bit reticent to be parted from the rest of the plant, you can throw the berries on a tray and throw the tray in a freezer and mm. let them freeze for a few hours and then take out a cluster or two at a time and separate them that way because the freezing action you know, causes the berry to kind of separate from the stem yep. and that makes it easier to get the berries off of the rest of the plant. Okay. And then to make about one 16 ounce bottle of elderberry syrup, you want about half a pound to a pound of the berries. So obviously the more berries you use, the stronger and deeper the flavor of the syrup and the thicker the syrup's gonna be and the less you use the opposite it's gonna be. Yeah. And so you basically um, try and get rid of as much stem material as you can, though it's not a big deal if there's a little bit of stem material, but you definitely don't want a lot of big stemmy material. And you'll put the berries in a pan, and I add a little bit of water, and you can add a wide variety of other herbs. So sky's the limit. You know, over in Europe, they'll often add slices of apple or other things but you can add whatever other herbs and spices suit you. Um, so ginger and anise and echinacea. Um, so, so you can make you know, a very complicated and complex flavored syrup, or you can just do it with the straight elderberries. Bring to a boil and then simmer the berries in the water. And you, you can use a potato masher or some other masher and you know, basically mash down the berries and mixture and cook it for about 20 minutes until you have roughly a cup of liquid left. And you'll strain out the liquid. And if you have a press of some kind, um, I always recommend pressing because the remaining material has so much liquid left in it. Mm, okay. And that's often some of the most flavorful. And then you'll strain it to make sure you have a nice clear liquid and then you can marry it 
to whatever sweetener your heart desires. Okay. And then, you know, you'll marry your juice and whatever else you'd put into the juice to a sweetener and you'll bottle it and then it'll need to be refrigerated. This has been such a wonderful conversation, John, and you gave just so much rich information from the book, which is a treasure of a book, by the way. Oh, thank you. I had so much fun writing that book. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for having me. So it's a, I always love getting to spend time with people like you who have a love of plants and their care. John Moody is a homesteader outside of Louisville, Kentucky, with his wife and their five children. He is author of The Elderberry Book, in which he shares all that he has learned about foraging, cultivating, preparing, and preserving with the many parts of the elder plant, an ancient plant ally to humans and their health around the world. John and his wife Jessica have also written on DIY sourdough and the frugal homesteader. Join us again next week when we return to the topic of horticultural therapy with Matt Wikrowski, who has dedicated his career to teaching and practicing horticultural therapy at the Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation Medicine at New York University. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out the many photos of the elderberry. There are some great historic images, as well as cultivation and preparation images and ideas for you to enjoy. Check it out. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.